We're here with Evelyn Ursinelli, um, and she's going to tell us a little bit about her research and a little bit about her ro role in the MSc Migration Studies course. So, hi, Evelyn. Hi, Fran. Nice to meet you. Um, thank you for joining us on this podcast. <laughs> All right. So, um, I guess let's let's start off with an introduction. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're interested in gen generally, and more specifically, why migration. Um, I'm Evelina um, Janili, as you said. I'm a Dutch national. Uh, I have an MSc in interdisciplinary social science, or a nice broad base, one could say, and a PhD in sociology from um, the VU University of Amsterdam. I came I, to migration study, I guess, from an early age on. I was very much interested also from a family background in, in social inequalities. And I think living in the Netherlands, quite a few of, of the migrant groups that we have there are in a socially, socially disadvantaged um, position. Um, so that stood, stood my interest, both politically and, and uh, academically. Um, so it's one of the specializations that I had, and, and during my studies, I think I developed a broader um, interest in in migration. So, what was that early research kind of on, like the social disadvantage stuff? I think m one of my key interests initially, again, also politically, was multiculturalism, um, was something that appealed to me greatly um, because the social socioeconomic disadvantage even though that was my initial interest, grew more into an interest in, in general forms of exclusion, so also very much uh, related to discrimination and racism and the possibility to um, show off your um, or live your cultural background. Uh, so I got very interested in that, and then I took a course um, in Utrecht, and that showed uh, Canadian multiculturalism. And I read about that, and I thought, oh, that's fantastic. I need to go see uh, with my own eyes how that works. And luckily, there's these scholarships by the Canadian uh, government that allow people like me to go to Canada and, and see what multiculturalism is all about. So I did that. I spent seven months in Toronto in 2007, looking at the Iranian community there. And um, I, I never actually considered um, um, a career in academia, but then I realized that doing research is a lot of fun, and I still feel that it's it's such a privilege to be paid to ask questions and actually look for answers um, on a daily basis. Mm. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so where, where is that taking you? What sort of research have you been working on lately? So I think I'm, I'm in, a, in a transition phase at the moment, so it's a slightly okay. difficult question to answer uh, because my, my PhD was on uh, Turkish migrants in the Netherlands, France and Germany. Again, more of a policy perspective, seeing how policies might affect um, the social cultural integration of, these, uh, of this group um, and other groups as well. Um, which showed that actually the effects of policies are, are quite limited within the European scope, of course. And I think now after studying migrants in, in Europe for a couple of years, I'm, I'm thinking about branching out in a sense. And I think especially here being at Oxford at the International Migration Institute and here at the Department for International Development has been such an inspiring um, environment um, because it just opens your scope to so many other migration contexts because many of the degrees that are on migration studies and also much of the most cited works are still just on migrants in Europe and in the right. US, whereas of course a lot of migrants are in other parts of the world. Uh, and that's then often studied mostly from a development perspective, but less from a more classic um, citizenship perspective. Okay, so where specifically do you want to trans um, transition into investigating then? Well, there's, there's 
three things I'm looking at um, at the moment. Uh, one is more my methodological interests, okay. uh, which isn't very strong. I've, I've done a lot of server research and um, I, I'm working on a project at the moment on server research in developing countries, but more substantially, I was very inspired last year by several of our students who either have a Korean background or have lived in, in South Korea. Uh, and learning about the migration that's occurring there at the moment, um, which is a lot of um, men in rural areas of South Korea, they are unable to find a, a wife in South Korea for, for several reasons, and they end up marrying wives from especially the Philippines and Vietnam. And that's posing a lot of challenges to what is, as I've understood it at the moment, a very homogenous idea of what the South Korean or the Korean hmm. uh, nation is, which has led South Korea to start experimenting with politics of multiculturalism. Um, and I think this is not, South Korea is not the first country that you'd think of right. when you hear about multiculturalism. Uh, so I really look forward to exploring more what is meant by multiculturalism in South Korea, why they are using it, how they are using it, mm. and how people are, are finding it there. And, and it must be quite a unique situation of kind of multiculturalisms being driven by the women being the multicultural group and the men still kind of being Korean or so. Yeah, well, I think the, the specific challenge there is obviously when you have women intermarrying, mm. um, they are literally producing the next generation of, of Koreans. Right. Uh, and that is because usually when you think about integration, if you look at classical theory such as Gordon, I think if I remember correctly, he had seven stages and intermarriage would be one of the last ones, right? right. It's always the last taboo in a sense, <laughs> um, the ultimate merging of, of multiple cultures and Korea seems to be starting there. Right. Um, Almost. So I think intellectually that's just, just uh, very, very interesting. And also because uh, Korea is a very wealthy country and it is uh, a democracy. So based on many studies on in Europe, you would expect it to have a very open policy. Hmm. But actually it does not. Um, so I think that makes Korea or South Korea a very good case um, to challenge some of the existing faults in, in citizenship theories. Okay, so you, you said three strands, so what were the other ones? Then? Um, so that is one trend. The other one is, is as I said, um, survey research in, um, in developing countries because um, so we've done that a lot here, obviously at the department. I was recruited here for a study, it's called Imagine, that looks at migration aspirations and perceptions of human rights and democracy of people in Morocco, Turkey, Senegal and Ukraine. Uh, and I've been trained in, in survey research, but mostly in a, in a developed country context. And then you worry about issues such as non-response, which let me tell you, in, in Senegal, it's, it's not a big issue. <laughs> you're, you're looking at 100% response rates there in, in rural areas. But of course, it poses lots of other challenges, uh, logistical challenges, mm. um, linguistic challenges. Um, literacy, of course, is an issue, and I by no means want to assert that these things haven't been looked at. Of course they have, but I feel there's a lot of room for further development now, um, especially in light of, of novel technologies okay. that are uh, coming up. So we're, I'm very excited that together with Melissa Siegel of Maastricht University, we're organizing um, um, a panel at the European Survey Research Association uh, conference and um, we actually got so many applications that we're organizing four sessions <laughs> and the first one is just on using mobile phones and um, internet um, and radio as novel ways of, of getting public opinion uh, oh, in Africa wow. especially out. That, that's really cool actually. 
wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> no, and, and cool. it was. I think we we both felt there was a need because Melissa's worked in a lot of developing countries. She's doing a project in Afghanistan, Burundi, Ethiopia, and uh, Morocco at the moment. Um, and both of us felt that we need most of the books that we use don't address some of the issues that we mm. were in touch with. So we felt there was a need for that. And by the sheer amount of abstracts that were submitted, it was so clear that we hit a nerve somewhere. <laughs> so we're, we're very excited um, about that at the moment. Okay, that that sounds great. And the third turn, then? Well, that's that's very. It's a very ambitious project. We, together with colleagues <laughs> from Germany and uh, the Netherlands, we've put in a bid. Um, one of those funding bids that has a 5% uh, chance of being granted, so we're still fingers crossed. Um, and that's more about the relation between migration and social change. Um, and we're looking at the case of um, marriage patterns in the Indian community and how that's affected through um, migration. So you see classical theories would be either integration, so once you migrate to let's say the UK then a marriage pattern would adapt to UK norms, so that would be lesser role of the family for instance and other characteristics that you would be looking for in a partner. Um, if you look at more transnational theories, then it's all, well, even after migration, you maintain in contact with the origin region. And this is very often seen as a means of cultural reproduction, because if you keep in touch, then you do not change. And we are actually arguing that because the origin countries are changing rapidly as well, that actually these transnational contexts might be driving change. Uh, mm. instead of preventing it. So we want to look at that by comparing the Indian community in the UK with the one in um, Kuwait um, as a kind of an extreme different case and then with the origin region, basically their cousins um, okay. in, in India. So what are the key differences between the communities in the UK and Kuwait then? Well, we're hoping, so our idea would be um, that these would all be people from the same region. So we're still in the process of deciding what would be the ideal region in, in India that would have right. migration to both um, the UK and Kuwait in substantial numbers mm -hmm. uh, and that are relatively comparable in socioeconomic class. So that's not the alternative explanation of any, any patterns we might, we might find. Right. So we're looking at Kerala, for instance, as a, as a huge sending state, mm -hmm. but that has a slightly atypical position within India for being relatively um, socially progressive. Right. Um, so we, yeah, once we will only learn in December whether or not the project will be funded. So that will be <laughs> a decision for, for a bit um, later. Um, yeah, so again, I, because that's again a, a, an interest that I was able to develop here in, in this in this environment here at IMI and QEH on this link between migration and social change, uh, transmission of values in, in different directions and in circularity. And I, I find that very um, interesting intellectually as well. Okay, actually, so I'm uh, um, just just touching on that then. So, what what do you find kind of most enjoyable? And you you have said some of these things, but what do you find most enjoyable about being at Oxford and working with these different depart uh, departments and institutes? I think until now I've I've always been very lucky in my place of work, uh, and it's for me it's 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 kept getting better and better <laughs> every time I've moved and. Um, I think for me, IMI is, is the best place I could ever dream of working as a migration researcher because all my colleagues, um, they're doing such, such interesting work uh, and they're such good people to talk to for feedback 
uh, can be painful at times because you're always very good at pointing out all the weak points in, in your ideas. But of course, that's how you improve. That's how you learn. And that's how your proposals and, and your, your articles get much better. And again, I, I probably find it most exciting, the developing um, country orientation that we take here. Not just developing countries as huge senders of migrations, but migrants, but also as uh, recipients, of course. Because again, I think... If you'd look at the news, you'd think that it's just everybody from Africa and Asia that wants to come to Europe or North America. Um, whereas, of course, if you look at numbers, that's that's not the case. It's only a small fraction of migrants who, who come up north, if you want to call it that. Right. Um, and, and again, theory building has been much too focused on that share and not so much on, on what's happening in other contexts. Hmm. Okay, that, that's very interesting. Um, so... For, for, the, for the entertainment of our listeners, I'm going to ask, um, do you have any interesting stories that have emerged out of your research so far? One, one in particular that you might want to share? I, I've, I think there's, there's so many. <laughs> and I, I think most of my anecdotes relate to more methodological um, experiences. Uh, I, I, I think you will have seen me or heard me use some of them in, in class, some of the better and worse choices I've made during my own research and what I've learned from that. And I think, again, the Imagine project has been very a huge learning opportunity um, so that you can look at all your survey books and come up with this fantastic strategy and then you're in the field and you're realizing this is never going to work. And mm. one example that springs to mind is we had this great idea of doing a random walk, which is a quite common strategy. If you are not able to find some population data, you could draw a sample from. And basically a random walk is you start in the middle of a village or at some random point. Um, and then you... Um, try to do a survey at each fifth or each tenth house. Well, sounds fine, again, tried and tested. But then in one of the regions in Morocco, it is a region that is mostly inhabited by cattle farmers. <laughs> and because they need space for their cattle, they live very far apart. Right. So there's no way that you can do a random walk unless you're, yeah, yeah. Really, really sporty. And even then, it will be a huge, huge challenge. Uh, so again, it's it's... In Every a sense, an obvious farm thing. is a big distance. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's huge. I, I show pictures and you basically, even though you can see I'm on the top of a hill and you're looking down into what is, according to the population data, a village. It's basically one house on the one um, corner of the picture frame and then another house, maybe start of another house at the other corner. <laughs> so you can immediately see that you need a very different strategy right. um, to deal with that. Um, yeah. So that, that is something. Okay, so given that we've touched on that, um, so you teach on the MSc Migration Studies course. Um, for, for our listeners at home, what, what, what do you teach? I teach uh, three courses in total. My main teaching responsibility is a two-term course in qualitative and quantitative methods of social research. Um, the first term, um, which is called Michaelmas term here in Oxford, um, we talk about research design, um, conceptualization, very important, especially within migration studies, because we use so many concepts that are extremely broad and can mean everything, uh, and that needs to be narrowed down in case selection, and also obviously about um, the qualitative and quantitative research methods that are used in migration studies. And for me, that's uh, I really enjoy teaching that course, um, because I have quite a bit of research experience both with surveys but also more with in-depth interviews and I um, enjoy sharing 
my experiences from that with the students. So, and I think our main goal in that course is because we look at our students both as future consumers and future producers of research data. So that means they both need to learn how you could set up research, what decisions go into that, what are the possibilities, what are some creative approaches, but also to understand what choices other people have made, hmm. uh, even though reports are not always as open on that as they should be. And I think most importantly, the awareness that there are a lot of choices involved uh, in research. Um, you often will not be able to meet an ideal type research because of all sorts of constraints, and that's okay, um, as long as you're open about the choices you've made and also as long as you as a consumer are critical about the choices that are made and think about how these choices may have affected the results of the study. Okay, that's very interesting and actually I've enjoyed the course, um, personally speaking, so thank you. Um, on, on that then, so what's your teaching philosophy? I also feel it's very much an advantage to teach on a master's course because you can really go um, in depth into a lot of issues because students have a general knowledge and especially the students we get to the very good critical thinking skills when they arrive at Oxford. Um, but I look at this as a master's degree for many of our students, it's the last year in formal education. Um, after this, some will go on to do a defil, and others will uh, go on to the labor market, or in some cases, back to the labor market. So from this perspective, I feel it's very important that students learn to learn for themselves, to yeah. find their own information. Um, so my goal is really to teach a very solid base and a critical attitude, uh, and then the knowledge of realizing, okay, I don't know enough about this, and where can I look for more information? And how can I expand on the knowledge that I have? And I think sometimes this can be an annoying strategy for some <laughs> of the students because it might feel like I'm not answering their questions. I'm just replying to their questions with even more questions. Uh, but and maybe I should have made this more explicit in my teaching even. I, I feel this is very... Um, important as as a preparation for life. I think in general the, the Oxford degree is a very intensive course. Um, it's we call it a ninth or a ten month uh, program. Um, it's probably the hardest you will ever work. Um, but you learn a lot from that. Not just be out, out about migration, about research, obviously you learn a lot about that, but also a lot of um, yeah sounds a bit commercial, but I, I do feel it's very important, transferable job skills. Mm -hmm. um, and I think just looking for information is one of them. And I think, I don't know, I sometimes wonder because I teach statistics as well, uh, and I was very keen on teaching not just the theory, but also actually applied, uh, and not applied in a simple mouse-click way, but applied in uh, having students, some of whom think they have no number brain, which I think is not true. Um, yeah encouraging them to actually do what is very basic programming mm. uh, and seeing that how scared they are at the start they can all do it after after eight weeks I think is a very important um, skill that I teach and something I always take great pleasure in to see that most students made it by the <laughs> end of term. Um, so that, that, that sounds interesting and quite intense but um, on top of the methods course um, what are your other two teaching responsibilities? So the, the methods course is actually a two-term course and the second term consists of an introduction to statistics uh, and this is something a lot of people hate teaching this and I actually greatly um, enjoy it. 
um, and I try to make it as attractive as possible by inserting some movies and games and whatever whatever I can find. And this is again looking at students both as uh, consumers and potential producers of statistical analysis. Mm. Um, and again, we look at, okay, not just critically thinking, is statistics good? Is it good to take an average? Is that acceptable? Are you not ignoring the people who are not average? Aren't those people important too? But even before that, what is this an average of? What question did we ask? Who did we ask that to? Um, so thinking about sampling and randomness, and this, especially in migration ch uh, studies, is a huge challenge, um, especially for those who will be studying migrant populations. It's very hard to get the, the scientific ideal of a random sample because it's very hard to locate these people, mm. so let alone a list that somehow includes the names of all people and the contact information that you would be interested in. Um, so again, thinking through how that might matter. Uh, and also I think this is a very... A practical oriented course um, in the sense that um, students at the end of the course they have to do a little research project themselves it's it's a small quantitative paper um, and it's it's probably my favorite assignment on the course because it really allows students to be as creative as they want to really pursue their own interests and to come up with often fantastic research questions that I think are quite exciting and I think we should look into getting some of them published <laughs> as well um, and the idea is really of taking the students through all the phases of the of the research project for a quantitative research. So coming up with a question, thinking about measurement, then actually looking for a data set and seeing how you can turn this list of questions into the measures that you are interested in. Choosing the appropriate statistical tests, think about if any assumptions that are very common in statistics are being violated, and if so, how you can deal with that. And then of course, think about the implications of your results. Uh, and again, in a very nuanced way, so knowing statistics is about probability, which for many of us is a very difficult concept to deal with. Even though everybody has an awareness of probability intuitively, um, people struggle with it, which I think is always very common in casinos when people go, oh, roulette has been <laughs> red for three times now, so I'm putting all my money on black because it's only logical that the next one's going to be black. Right? Right. Um, so to get a more, to get a better grip of, of concepts like that. And at the end, and then I actually, I was really pleased to be contacted by one of our students from last year recently who, who was initially struggling in the class but improving a lot throughout the term and she emailed me because she was actually helping one of her colleagues uh, do a statistical test and she <laughs> was clear that she felt very empowered that she was now able to do this um, so I think in that sense I, this is the course I take most joy out of um, in many ways although I must say there's one other course that I teach which is an option course um, on citizenship belonging in the legal system I teach that together with my colleague um, Agnieszka Kubal uh, who has a, as a social legal scholar and that looks indeed as my more research background so integration and citizenship policies um, and one of the things that we really try to do in that course is again take the literature beyond the European and North American uh, classics and look at some other fields but it, I do find it quite challenging because most of the literature on other countries is still very anthropological so to connect that back to my main sociological and political perspective mm. can be can be challenging but it's also what I really enjoy about that course it's quite small will not be more than 12 students they come from very different backgrounds they've lived in different countries they have studied different uh, degrees or different disciplines and that creates such a broad perspective 
um, in the discussion and it's probably the course that I learned most from myself and it is really the course that from last year has inspired me to look at South Korea as a case and that's uh, I'm really grateful to the students for making me aware of that in, in that sense and this year again it's been it's been absolutely fantastic I, I feel extremely energized after the course and again I think this is one of the privileges of, of working and teaching at Oxford just the people that you meet um, and all the things they have to say and all these experiences they have. It's such a rich environment, really. Um, okay, so, so to sum all of that up um, and to wrap up overall, so w what do you think you'd be, uh, would be the one thing you'd want your students to leave with? I think, again, it would be a critical attitude towards migration studies in general because it's such a hot topic in a lot of public debates and despite the vast body of knowledge that we have there's still so many misunderstandings, misconceptions for instance about the relation between migration and development, about the unprecedented size um, of migration streams, about the direction of migration streams and obviously especially given the two courses that I teach to be very critical when it comes to assessing claims made by other researchers or when developing their own claims to always ask, okay, um, what questions were asked to find this information? Who were they asked to? Who were they asked by? And how might this have influenced the results? And should we challenge the findings based on this? And can we improve on the findings by asking different questions to different people? Okay. Well, thank, thank you, Evelyn. Um, that was very informative and very interesting. Um, so thanks for joining us.